Hi, you're listening to a special podcast edition of Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, directly to your device across the globe via podcast, I'm Nina Kopel. This week, I had the pleasure of chatting with Debbie Cornwall, the American photographer behind the series Gitmo at Home. Her work takes you inside the U.S. Naval Station in Guantanamo Bay, revealing a side of life on Gitmo you may not have seen before. For me, her work raises questions about what photos can really do. Is she working as a photojournalist to show us scenes the world might not have seen before? Or is she an artist exercising her creative vision? So to get things started, I asked her how she describes herself. I am an American conceptual documentary artist. A conceptual documentary artist. What on earth does that mean? What on earth does that mean? (laughs) Well, I am a photographer, um, but I am looking at documentary subjects in untraditional ways. And increasingly, I'm using other forms in addition to photographs, such as texts and testimony and sound and archival materials. That's really interesting. Tell us about the work that brought you here to Australia. It's my first trip to Australia. I'm thrilled to be here, and it's all because of the Head-On Photo Festival, who's invited me down to show my work, uh, Welcome to Camp America, inside Guantanamo Bay. And so this series, when you look at the photos without any context, you could think that you're kind of in the backyard of any person in the U.S. Yes. What made you approach Guantanamo Bay like that? Well... If you're anything like me, and I imagine your listeners are very much like me in this instance, when you picture Guantanamo Bay in your mind's eye, there's a particular image that comes to mind. If you're like me, it involves an orange jumpsuit and fatigues and barbed wire. And we've seen that picture over and over and over again. The United States military limits who gets to go to Guantanamo to make pictures and what they see when they get there. So we've seen this picture repeated, and I think it's been drained of meaning over the 16-plus years that the U.S. Naval Station in Guantanamo Bay has been repurposed as a so-called war on terror prison site. So my challenge was to take a very different kind of picture uh, to invite new eyes and a fresh look. So you raised a few interesting points there. One was the lack of access. I wonder how you managed to end up there and what if there were any conditions on you being there. Absolutely. It's a challenge even to find out how to get there, whom to ask for permission. Um, So there was quite a bit of research involved. When I found out who the authorizing entity was, I then had to craft a proposal. And I said I, I was a lawyer, which I was for many years, but now I'm an independent photographer and I'd like to document daily life of both detainees and guards. And I waited about nine months, went through a background check, and was cleared. And when I was cleared, the what they call country clearance came with 12 pages of rules they would have to agree to as a condition of going. So do you think that, I mean, I don't know what those conditions were, but you didn't go in saying, I'm a journalist and I'm going to document the lives of these suffering human beings. You said, I'm going to document the day-to-day life. What was the distinction there for them, do you think? Well, it's hard to say what motivated the permission. I think 
my experience with my military escorts who were with me day in and day out and reviewed every frame that I took uh, to approve it and make sure I was following the 12 pages of rules, um, their reaction to my pictures was, on one hand, we don't need to worry about her because she's photographing the bowling alley and the golf course. And secondly, they recognized their own spaces. And I think it's the rare photographer who visits that site who looks at the lived experience of the military. So to paint a picture for people who might not know your work, um, some of the pictures, there's one of a swimming pool with this big inflatable, what is it? It's a... I think it's a turtle in the kiddie pool. It's the kind of floating toy that a toddler might sit on in the midst of a wading pool. Yeah, one that struck me as particularly normal, I guess, was the bed and there was this kind of poster in the background of this. It seemed almost Caribbean, these bright colours, this kind of, you know, holiday destination. But it could have been the room of any person in the world, you know? Yes, yes. But it's actually the bedroom of a soldier who is... um, deployed to Guantanamo Bay and the poster, the one piece of artwork on the wall is a poster of the lighthouse at sunset at Guantanamo Bay itself. Oh, wow. So it really struck me being in that space and comparing it to the spaces available to the prisoners. Uh, And one thing that struck me that was quite a surprise was that no matter what side of the wire you're on in Guantanamo Bay, you've got one or two things in common uh, with the others. No one has chosen to live in this place. And in my limited experience, my sense was also that no one is sleeping through the night. And that awareness uh, of what these two groups had in common creates a very different kind of conversation. So you've already mentioned that you come from a background in law. What made you transition in this way? Well, I spent 12 years uh, practicing as a civil rights lawyer representing wrongly convicted men across the United States. So in that capacity, I was looking at both the systemic, the big picture of what went wrong in the criminal justice system, and also the personal. What is the impact of injustice on individuals and their relationships and their communities? Um, After 12 years of pretty intense work on these heavy cases, I decided I wanted to live differently and look at some of the same kinds of questions, but from a different perspective. Um, Rather than being fueled by outrage in my daily life, I could be more connected with people and um, explore more of the world. Um, And sort of rather than finger wagging, um, as lawyers, we tend to speak mostly to each other and then in very technical language. Um, As an artist, my work is about inviting um, and curiosity and engaging people in a very different way. So my question for you is, are you an artist or are you a photojournalist? Well, I think it's Probably for others to say whether I qualify as an artist, uh, despite my best efforts. Um, I can say I don't look at myself as a photojournalist. I think there are important limitations and rules for journalists about how they work. I'm not someone who stages or manipulates pictures, um, but I think if you tell people that you're a photojournalist working on Guantanamo, 
the picture that comes to mind is going to be that orange jumpsuit, or you're going to expect to see a day in the life of a man cleared and released from Guantanamo. And I'm creating meaning in a very different kind of way. So my interpretation of what you just said is maybe a photojournalist would be going in and telling the story, what they see, whereas you're capturing a moment and letting people tell more of their own stories or interpret more? I'm definitely looking for ways to engage viewers, to make them curious, to make them aware of their own assumptions and disrupt those assumptions. I'm also creating meeting not in a linear way as photojournalists might traditionally do, but instead with different layers. So for example, at Guantanamo itself, I looked at daily life in two series. One is called Gitmo at Home, Gitmo at Play, and that looks at the daily life of both the prisoners and guards through their residential and their leisure spaces juxtaposed. Many of these photographs are without photograph. Um, many of these sites are without people because one of the many rules I had to follow was not to photograph anyone's face. Even partial profiles were deleted by military censors in what they called operational security review. So Gitmo at home, Gitmo at play is one non-traditional body of work I made at Guantanamo. Then I went to the gift shop. Turns out there is a gift shop at the U.S. Naval Station in Guantanamo Bay known as Gitmo. And I bought all the souvenirs I could carry home on the charter flight, this peculiarly American phenomenon to commodify our power, as it were, in objects to be bought and sold. Um, The third body of work which adds the human layer back in, I call Beyond Gitmo. And over the course of a year, I collaborated with 14 men cleared and released from Guantanamo Bay, now living in nine countries, some of whom had gone home and others of whom couldn't go home, but were instead transferred to third countries. And those photographs are distinct conceptually. And visually, distinct in what way, and that they capture more of a personal story of the the men you were di- you were talking to. Well, I wanted to find a way to convey to viewers what it's like to try to re-enter society after years of imprisonment, without charge, without trial, where you're not cleared in the traditional way. There's no court order saying you didn't do it. There's no DNA report. It's not that kind of case. And we haven't provided these men that kind of due process. They have been cleared, but they are they remain suspect in their communities when they return home. So the visual conceptual approach that I took was to photograph them as though they were still in Guantanamo Bay, subject to the military's no faces rule. Each of these environmental portraits is made from the back. So you don't see the man's face, but you get a glimpse into his environment, the disorientation of being dropped into a foreign culture like Albania or Slovakia, not knowing anybody. It's just a different way of conveying meaning. I'm sure all of those stories were interesting unto themselves, but were there any that you that you learned and that have stuck with you that you could share with us? Each man has a remarkable story, and I was struck by all of them, and um, they are resilient and frustrated. Um, the range of responses, as you can imagine, um, 
One story stays with me in particular that comes to mind was the story of Hamsa, a Tunisian man who spent almost 13 years in Guantanamo Bay without charge, without trial, was ultimately cleared, and because of the political situation in Tunisia at the time, could not return home. So instead, he was sent to a tiny town in Slovakia. Slovakia, as I understand it, is the only country in Europe with no mosque. So he he and a fellow released man, a Yemeni, um, released from Guantanamo, are two of the only Muslims for hundreds of miles around. And Hamza is very tall. He is brown, unlike uh, fellow citizens of Slovakia. He's Muslim. And he stands out. And he's having a really hard time. So two weeks before I arrived to photograph him, the special forces police in plain clothes broke down his door and shot him with rubber bullets. He was taken to the hospital. And he preserved the destruction in his apartment for me, the American, to witness. And he said, I asked them, why did you do this to me? And he was told, well, you didn't leave your home for three days. And he handed me a sheaf of papers. And he said, look, I can prove I left my apartment. Look, look, I have evidence. Do you think the FBI will help me? And it was staggering to me on many levels that proof that you'd left your apartment feels important to Marshall when none of this makes sense. But more importantly for me, it spoke to what I think of as Camp America, which is both a literal place at the U.S. Naval Station in Guantanamo Bay, but more metaphorically speaks to this idea that we perpetuate that the United States is a protector of human rights and that it's such a powerful idea that a man held in Guantanamo for 13 years, having done nothing wrong, still believes that the United States government, that the FBI might come to his aid. What a crazy story. I want to come back to something you said at the beginning of our chat, which is the way you are crossing platforms, the way you're incorporating um, alternative mediums to cross beyond photography into something new. In what way are you doing that? Yes. Well, I do it in books and in exhibitions. Um, I think people process information in different ways. Um, so offering different ways into the material, whether it be text in the book, uh, Welcome to Camp America, published by Radius Books, a, a wonderful nonprofit publisher in the United States just late last year. We use text in Arabic and in English um, for a couple of reasons. One is I want to be in conversation with those most impacted by America's war on terror policies. But also I want to signal in a, in a more subtle way to English speakers um, that we don't live in a vacuum. There is a broader world out there and it's important to embrace that, uh, particularly when it comes to navigating fears and concerns around uh, the so-called war on terror. I include 
once classified government documents um, in the book and at times in exhibitions as well. There's more here than what we're allowed to see. Um, I'm playing a lot with what is concealed and what is revealed. So at Guantanamo, when my military escort said to me, Gitmo is the best posting a soldier could have. There's so much fun here. I decided to look at what I was being asked to see. And then later, with other materials, with other kinds of pictures, with archival materials, with government documents, I would add context. In exhibitions, um, in indoor exhibitions, I'm able to add additional materials. So at Head On, we have an outdoor location at the Paddington Reservoir Gardens, which is a remarkable site um, and, and moving to experience that sort of underground location for the work. When I have had the opportunity to mount the full exhibition indoors, I also include sound. Uh, and I have a recording that you can listen to as you walk through an exhibition at your own pace um, or uh, sound installations at listening stations. Um, and the sound is made up in collaboration with a French investigative poet called Frank Smith. Who knew there was such a thing? I am intrigued. What is that? It's this remarkable um multi-talented person who has written a book called Guantanamo that reimagines Guantanamo hearing transcripts, some of the same materials I referred to for my book as poetry. So with his permission, I took excerpts of that material and boiled it down to about five minutes and did a reading. So there's one man's voice playing the role of both the interrogator and the interrogated. And the excerpts I've chosen bring out the almost absurdist quality of some of these exchanges, some of the who's on firstness um, of the questions and the answers that are reduced to mere form, um, as well as some of the incredibly poignant and moving and confusing elements of this place. It's a very complex system, and I want to offer audiences different ways to understand that material. What's next for you? Do you have any new projects on the horizon? I am investigating a new project. Um, I've become fascinated by the performance of American power, and I am taking my time to develop a new project that may be called Necessary Fictions, about the staging and performance of American power from military training exercises to Hollywood productions. We'll see how it turns out. I look forward to seeing that come to being. You and me both. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Nina. And that's it for this special podcast edition of Fourth Estate. If you're in Sydney and want to see Debbie's work, you can check out Head On Photo Festival this week. Her exhibit is on at the Paddington Reservoir Gardens until the 20th of May. And keep your eyes peeled, a new panel edition of Fourth Estate is going to drop super soon for more journalists talking journalism. If you like what you've been hearing lately on Fourth Estate, or even if you don't, please leave us a review. It helps us make better stuff. You can stay in touch with us on Facebook or on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. My name's Nina Kopel. Until next time.